Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Oh, that bird. <laughs> Yeah, that that particular bird you might hear. Yeah, that's all right. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 27 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graben. I'm indoors. We're joined by... Jamie Flinchball. I'm I'm outdoors. And uh, good morning, Mark. (laughs) Good morning. Um, Now, people might wonder... Well, for one, they're gonna they're gonna hear the birds. That sounds like a golf broadcast a little bit in the background. So that's cool. Could be. <laughs> and uh, people may be wondering, okay, no, 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 no. You, you guys have not progressed to drinking whiskey in the morning now. What's going on? Right. I, I like to say that there's there's two uh, two legitimate reasons that people don't think twice about drinking in the morning, and one is tailgating, and the other is travel, uh, airline travel particularly, yeah. but. Um, yeah, th- this this is not enough of a good reason. So uh, we're 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 not actually drinking whiskey today. <laughs> uh, we are we are drinking coffee, and not so, Irish coffee. No, exactly. Well, that that would be a different thing. I mean, you know, hey, to, to each their own. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we've all. I, I I didn't make a habit of that when I was traveling for business. The morning uh, Bailey's in the coffee like some business travelers do i try not to judge but yeah tailgate party i'm hoping to get back to that this fall up at northwestern right no that's uh, those are those are good reasons but but uh yeah we decided uh even though we were recording in the morning uh we're actually recording in the morning in part on purpose uh because we we wanted to do a coffee episode um uh we we both started doing pour over coffee uh at home Thought we'd uh, compare some notes, um, and so we're we're both doing pour over coffee this morning. Um, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, I don't want to say trend because it certainly is a trend, uh, but at the same time, it's a throwback uh, yeah. to how how many people used to. My father in law used used a, a Chemex like I'm using uh, every day, and and so it's a throwback. It's also a. Uh, um, a current trend, um, although I think what people are doing today with it is definitely different than some of the throwback from uh, from being very artisanal um, and craft oriented mm-hmm. in in making their coffee. And I think that's where the the crossover between the whiskey culture and the coffee culture mm-hmm. starts to starts to come into play. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about the process of making this and some of the tools and gear that we've used a little bit today. So I've, I've, I poured mine, I made mine a couple minutes before the episode. I just poured it out of um, a travel mug. And for those watching on YouTube, that looks like coffee, right? I'm not using, <laughs> I'm not using the coffee mug that says this might be bourbon. It's, it's right. coffee unadulterated. Mine's very easy to, easy to tell. Um, oh, we've got visibility into Jamie's uh, through a clear mug to those who are just listening. But before we get into the process, I was going to say, though, just going back to when we started this podcast, at one point, the concept was taking 
the lean coffee meeting format and doing that, but over whiskey. And we ended up not really following that format. Jamie and I don't have the post-it notes with the topics and the five minute timer and all of that, but some of the spirit of it, uh, pun intended, is, is meant to be the same of touching on different topics and doing it over a beverage in a friendly way. Yeah. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, lean coffee, uh, which has become quite popular as, as, uh, you know, sort of regional networks or conferences and other, and even inside companies. Uh, but it's sort of, you know, uh, just like that caffeine of the coffee, it's, it's high octane, uh, high caffeinated, mm-hmm. quick flow, you know, <laughs> high, highly regimented. And, and, and so our lean whiskey is in some ways the opposite, right? Low, low to no flow, <laughs> um, very casual. Uh, even if we only cover one topic, we're okay. No time limits. Um, so we're not going to flip formats today, uh, even though we are flipping beverages. Um, but uh, I, And we're flipping yeah, the time of day because this is about 12 hours off out of sync from when we normally do it. That, that it is. And we'll, we'll see if our, our minds are fresher and, and <laughs> our, um, although, although this is a Sunday and, uh, we, we, we both probably had, uh, y- yesterday was, was a world whiskey day or national whiskey. It was, day? I, can't remember. I think world it was whiskey world day. whiskey day. My world whiskey a friend, day. a friend of mine from Scotland was posting about that. So I will trust that he was um, correct about he, that. He was I, correct. I, I, he, he's in the industry. He knows what he's doing. I did have a little bit of, uh, I'm, I'm here in Texas and even, I'm repping the, uh, the Garrison Brothers shirt today. I did have some of our friend David Myers, Glens Creek OCD number five premium last night. Ooh, very good. Very good. I, I uh, made myself the first mixed drink of a uh, summer season. I don't tend to do that as much in the winter and uh, just, just, uh, neat is, is plenty good for me, but it was, a did a lot of y- outdoor yard work and, um, I felt a, a cooler beverage was, uh, was in order, but I definitely had yeah. a couple of different whiskeys, uh, in, in my evening last night. So coffee was inevitable anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, cheers and slancha and chin chin cheers high and what have you but um so let's 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 talk about coffee and i'm curious we're going to talk a little bit about what we're drinking and where as we typically would do and then we're also going to talk about how we made it or at least how we did the final preparation um so jamie if if you want to share first yeah so I'll, i'll uh you know again there's a lot of uh different ways to do this. And, and there's definitely some ingredients to making this work. Um, but I, I'm using a death wish coffee, which is, uh, an, an interesting coffee. It's, it's highly caffeinated. Um, but it, it's still very rich and, and has lots of, lots of flavor and tones to it. Um, I generally use it more for my espresso, mm. uh, and I use different, uh, actually decaf beans often for my over and I'll do both of those in the morning. But, uh, and I have some, some new coffee showing up, I think tomorrow. Um, but using death wish coffee, um, I have a, a new coffee grinder that KitchenAid makes, uh, that is, is really fantastic. Uh, not only does how it work, uh, very excellent, but I'll say two features. It, it really has one of the most narrow streams of, 
coffee grinds coming out that makes it very easy to control and not get you know sloppy. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a feature that matters. It's also has a nice, satisfying guttural uh, sound to the motor versus the high pitched whir that most have. Um, and the grinder, I think, is perhaps more important than your actual pour over gear. Um, you know, really right. kind of controlling that and getting that right. But because because um, what you're going for is a, a consistency in the size of the grind. Yep. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Consistency in the size from from one batch to the next, but also within mm-hmm. within your your batch. So if you have a bunch of different grind sizes uh, in your uh, in your batch of coffee, it's going to get different extractions from different mm-hmm. uh, granules. So. Um, so from a process standpoint, I have, I have a Chemex. Uh, this is the, the, the classic throwback uh-huh. 1950s, you know, Chemex. Never really been changed yeah. <laughs> process with, and, with and, paper filters. Okay. And Chemex is the brand of that. Chemex is the brand yeah. um, and, and has a very uh, specific feel to it uh, from, uh, you know, again, how it's been styled and, and manufactured for, for decades. Um, and uh, works works quite well. Mm-hmm. Uses paper filters, which is a downside, but but I'll, I'll say from an environmental standpoint. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know there are some advantages to uh, kind of how what the paper controls. But real quick on my process is, you know, I, I wet the filter, um, pour out the water actually while I'm doing the grind, so I'm really mm-hmm. getting the freshest grind. Then right. a pour over to get what what's called the bloom, mm-hmm. which is allowing the gas to escape because you don't want the gas is escaping while the water is trying to go into the coffee. It it works against and, itself, and and I think it's carbon dioxide. It's the same thing if you're making with yeah. French press process, and and you actually see it kind of swell a little bit, which is kind of yep. fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, on the French press, you just it's just brute force, right? You're just mm-hmm. Shoving the coffee in there and the water in there, and you just you know, let it, it sit. steeps. Yeah, it just steeps, and and it's and it's it's a been my most common past practice because mm-hmm. it does give you a thorough coffee. Um, but once you get the uh, the bloom to settle, usually about thirty seconds, mm-hmm. then you keep a steady pour of hot water until you get uh, until you until you're finished, and and generally the the, the the purpose of this whole process, which actually timed day takes about 10 minutes for me mm-hmm. from beginning to end, um, is, is, uh, it, it's not as much brute force. It is more nuanced and you definitely get more of the flavor notes of, of the coffee, which only matters if you're using, you know, fr- coffee beans <laughs> with, yeah. that are freshly ground and, and well properly roasted and, you know, has something worth tasting. Um, right. So otherwise, you don't you know you don't do a pour over with the Folgers because it's just there's no point. <laughs> Pro- <to> it, so <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I, I or yeah, not a sponsor. So we, we don't have sponsors. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, I'm not really looking nope. for that big old can of Folgers or Maxwell House. Any uh, Maxwell House anyway. That's of a uh, a different era. But yeah, you're you're right. Like the the process of making the pour over is interesting. I mean, it's not quite a Japanese um, traditional green tea ceremony, but almost. No. It, I mean, it, yeah, there's it has a lot involved. some of that feel to it. And, and I, I think we'll, we'll come back to this, I think, but um, 
you know, to me, that's part of the value is that ritual, including making the espresso, which is mm-hmm. it's part of the ritual. It's the tamp and the and the swipe and the you know the polish and all the things that come with it. So it, it, it and it is a little bit about the control over the product, right? Mm-hmm. You can't you can't get a good product without some human focus and execution. And that that that's part of the craft mm-hmm. that I think uh, has has some appeal. And and later in the episode, we're going to talk about inventory and supply chain. I mean, as with manufacturing, um, if you're not procuring um, good um, um, uh, components to your beverage, you know, garbage in, garbage out, maybe from uh, a quality perspective. So I, you know, I'll, I'll talk how I've got slightly different equipment, but I think the thing that first, uh, yeah, I think caught my attention with pour over coffee, I don't know, five or six years ago was to think of like, you know, going to a coffee shop. I'm normally a black coffee drinker. So the old, the comments or the money advice about your $5 a day latte habit, not quite the same thing when it's black coffee, $2. Now, with the pour-over, um, I, I think there's a couple of things that come into the pricing where you could then easily end up paying 5 or 6 or $7 for a cup of coffee at a craft local coffee shop. But maybe there's a, a better quality of bean. Um, the process, mm-hmm. I think, certainly – like that, the, to me, that's a cup of coffee I want to sit and enjoy in the coffee shop without a lid – Right, because I'm getting the aromas and and there's that experience. I'm clearly not in a rush if I'm willing to order. You know, I'm not going to just slap a lid on it and drink it in the car. And and so and then there's the labor component of it. So it is more expensive to produce. I mean, prices. Yep. I think you know being driven by the market and what people are are willing to pay. You know, I'm willing to pay that. And I, I wanted to start experimenting at home though because you can do this with your own labor much more um, cheaply at home. So, you know, you've got tools, right? So um, I started off with uh, a digital kitchen scale because sort of like baking, at least I, I, I didn't bring the bag of coffee up to the office here, but I, I, ha- I was using beans from a roaster in LA. Um, it's called the boy and the bear. They've got a couple of locations, both roasting and um, the coffee shop. And they'll of course make a pour over there. Um, but on these beans, which come from Colombia. Um, they have a lot of direct farmer relationships. So there's a different supply chain issue. Like the name of the farmer is on the bag as well. And <laughs> nice. I think they're, they're trying to do right um, by those farmers. But on the bag, it says very specifically, they recommend doing 30 grams of coffee. So to your point, I would, I would set up my scale, weigh out 30 ounces of beans. And then I have a, a sep- I've, I've got a different model, KitchenAid, grinder and they call it a burr grinder. So we may have all started off with the type of grinder that has just a whirling blade inside a Mm -hmm. container area. Well, that really pulverizes and heats up the coffee and the grind's not going to be real consistent. So this burr grinder, it's more like uh, if you were milling for whiskey production, the beans fall down and through and get chopped and cut up into um, grounds. And so I did that right before um, making the coffee. So 
I've got a scale. I'm weighing out the coffee. Um, I'm heating water. Um, I, I, we've got a, a Breville brand electric kettle. Um, you know, very more common uh, in, in to see in households, maybe in the UK, where people are making tea. And this right. one's sort of fancy. It was a gift for my wife, who's a tea drinker, where you can specify different precise temperatures depending yep. on what what you're making. So I have it on the the French press coffee setting, just below boiling. And so that water boiled, and then I was using a pour-over device that looked very similar to yours, Jamie, but it's from a, a brand called Bodum, which makes French presses and other devices. And it, it has a reusable metal filter. So I use that. And then the instructions say, again, like, you know, 400 grams of water. So mm-hmm. I've got the scale, I've reset it to zero, and now I start to pour, like you said, the 30-second bloom or so. You pour a little bit of water. So I've got the stopwatch app running on my phone. And so then, yeah, I'm kind of pouring in a circular motion. And it, as that thing sort of fills, like I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it quite continually. I don't know if this is a problem. The, the end result was good. But, you know, I kind of pour, I don't know, 50 grams of water, and it kind of starts to fill. And then I let it drip through. And then as that's mm-hmm. down, I, I pour a little more and I, I've got, you know, that timing works out pretty well on the bag of coffee. Again, so it says 30 grams of coffee, 400 grams of water, four minutes time uh, to produce. So unlike the French press where it sits and steeps here, it's actually dripping through, but there's some water that gets left stuck in the grounds. Mm-hmm. So I think they're saying four minutes because you don't want to let it sit and drip forever. Right. For one, the coffee's cooling, and at some point you might start extracting more bitter right. over time. So um, there, there's there's an interesting, for sure, interesting process to it. Yeah, and I I think um, you know part of part of uh, you know you go look to different uh, different styles of making coffee. Of course, if you're going to start, you know throwing a bunch of ingredients in it and syrups and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all that, all that other stuff. There's really no point to doing this. And sure. And, and I, I actually first, you know, really experienced pour overs because whatever I wanted when I went uh, to a coffee house, they didn't have. And, and like, it could have just been decaf. Like they didn't have mm-hmm. a pot of decaf on. So right. it's like, but we can do a pour over. I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, do a pour over. And, um, and, and I, I noticed the difference. Um, and, and so that was part of my experience. Now, most of my coffee over the years has been whatever machine they stick in your hotel room. Since <laughs> I traveled, right. you know, three to four weeks a month for, for 20 years, you know, whatever, whatever equipment and, and beans or pot, uh, bags they put in your, in your hotel room that was usually what my coffee right. drinking it's a experience was measured pouch or increasingly you get k cup Keurig machines right yep and, and so yeah I, I i tended to drink coffee more as just a habit more than an experience but mm-hmm. um but with pour over it's 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 i do think it's very much a different product um when i compare yeah. the same stuff against a french press same coffee, the same, mm-hmm. even, you know, even if I play around with ground, uh, grounds, um, uh, grind size, it's, it, it's a different experience mm-hmm. in drinking it for yeah. sure. And then of course it's, it's a different experience in, in making. And then of course it takes time 
Mm-hmm. Um, takes more time than perhaps any other method of making coffee. Uh, but well, but it's, I think the, the ritual is, is part of the experience. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and, and Starbucks will do a pour over, um, like, like you said, in the middle of the day, if they're, if they're out of decaf or they're out of the blonde roast, which, mm-hmm. which I, I, when I, I, I prefer that lighter style roast as opposed to the overly, I mean, there's a reason people sometimes refer to them as Charbucks as a joke. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. they just, it's consistent, but they, it's consistently <laughs> burnt. And you could take, you know, bad beans and it doesn't matter once you over roast them. I'm not saying they have bad beans. You can get light roasts at Starbucks and, you know, there's, there's different, different flavors uh, for different people when it comes to all things. Um, right. But you know, when you think about the time, so let's I think there's maybe a lean point here about batch sizes and time and, uh, and quality. So, you know, you could take the same beans and downstairs we've got the traditional, drip coffee maker that'll make a 10 cup batch of coffee all at once. Now I haven't timed that. That'll take more than five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I've got a French press, which would take about the same amount of time as the pour over by the time you grind it, uh, let it steep for about five minutes. But I've got uh, a larger French press that makes two cups at a time. Mm-hmm. So the time of making 10 cups at once two cups at once in the French press, one cup at a time in the pour over. And then I've got also got the Keurig machine, which I haven't timed it, maybe takes two minutes. It's got to heat up the water and it does its thing. But, you know, I I have a reusable K-cup thing where I could grind beans and put the same beans into that and say, okay, Keurig, um, do your thing. So I think, you know, the one lean question I'll throw back to you is, you know, are, are, are batches always bad? Should you always make one cup one cup flow, one cup at a time. Yeah, and I, I think it, you know, it all depends, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, because you have two different sets of batches. You have how much coffee you make at once and by what method. You have time duration and you have time consumption, right? So your yeah. French press might take take as long in duration as, a as you know, French press and pour over might be, take the same duration. But you're, you're much more heavily involved in time consumption during the pour over method. Mm-hmm. Whereas French press, you pour it in, you just, you mm-hmm. go do something else just right. like the cake up <laughs> and, and then you come back and, and, and you, you have it. And then there's also the batching of, of the coffee, right? Do you, mm-hmm. how big a bag do you buy? Do you buy pre-ground? If you buy mm-hmm. pre-ground, um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's part of a batch. Uh, it's, it's, you know, and all my, all my grinders come with containers that have lids on them. So you can grind a few days worth and then put right. the lid on, which is another way of batching. But, you know, I think it depends on what you value. If you just right. want a cup of coffee, then, you know, well, let me, let me add another waste, right? So you have time, you also have material. Mm-hmm. Right? So I would argue from a, from a purely experiencing a cup of coffee standpoint, from a time waste standpoint and a value added standpoint, the K cup is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it adds material waste unless you have your your refillable, right. in which and, and case it, you've lost the time advantage. And, and there's uh, environmental impact of the right. K-cup, See, to the point where the inventor of the Keurig machine has expressed some regret over that. Um, right. So, but, uh, yeah, to your point, it depends on, like, are, are you just trying to get out the door and I just want to be caffeinated 
That's mm-hmm. one set. And we come back to the question of like, this is Clayton Christensen's last book, the job to be done. Yes. Are you trying to caffeinate yourself? Or are you trying to savor and enjoy something? Those are two very different coffee users, if you will. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and much like cooking, um, it, it's, do you enjoy the experience? Is, is the experience part of the value add mm-hmm. or is that just work to produce the product? Right. So right. is the value add the cup of coffee or is the value add the experience of making the cup of coffee? And that, that to me is where I think pour over has, uh, and, and, and espresso, but that's also a very different type of cup of that, coffee. Yeah, it tastes right. very different, but it, it, to me, it is part of the experience. It is part of the ritual. That's part of the value add for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't outsource that to somebody. I, I actually mm-hmm. prefer to make my own pour over than if I had a, you know, a drive by, uh, you know, <laughs> barista that, that would, that would do a pour over for me and stick it on my desk. Yeah. I, the value add of making it the craft, the ritual, th- that's part of the value add for me. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I think that's that's why probably the right thing for the market is that there are many different solutions because there right. are many different jobs to be done. Yep. And when you think about um, – well, so one key point, you know, think from a quality and a standard work perspective, um, that, you know, to, to listeners who, who buy, you know, we, we buy a batch of coffee, whether it's a 12-ounce bag or a 16-ounce bag. You may grind some of it as a batch. But the key point – um, that you know, experts say don't store your coffee in the freezer or the fridge because there's a there's no re- there's no need to refrigerate it. It's going to pick up moisture, I think, if you put it in the freezer, and it could pick up odors uh, from food. So mm-hmm. if you're using your, I mean, so you know, I think that's that's one tip. Just leave it out on the counter in a sealed bag or a canister or something. But when I think of the job to be done and batch sizes. I mean, there, there are different use cases. There's me making a cup of coffee for the podcast here. There's, um, if I was making, uh, coffee for the family, for a family gathering, I'm not going to do one pour over cup at a time, nor would, let's say my wife or my in-laws appreciate that. No, I mean, they, they, they might not, um, you know, they're gonna, if they're going to put um, some of them are going to put cream in it or some of them don't really care about the coffee so much. It's just a morning habit and caffeination drill. So I would probably make uh, if it was just a couple of cups, I would probably use the French press. And if I was really having a large gathering, I'm going to brew a big batch of coffee because it's going to get consumed. Right. The thing that got mm-hmm. me away from the traditional, let's say, 10 cup coffee maker is I would make a batch and then it either sits there and gets stale or, you know, I have a brewer with a metal carafe that, that keeps the coffee warm. Um, so it's not getting heated by that burner, you know, the bad gas station right. coffee or the bad break room coffee <laughs> that just gets burnt to death. Um, but I would, I would end up dumping out two-thirds or a half of what I made. So that kind of – that did lead me to some smaller batch coffee solutions. And I will admit to using the Keurig at times, not always with the reusable K cup. Um, it's part of my mm-hmm. environmental load, if you will, but I think different right. solutions for different needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, Easter with family over, we, uh, um, you know, I made, I made a French press and 
uh, maybe even two of them. Um, but I, I still enjoy for, for anybody interested and willing. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go make the espresso for you and, and, uh, you know, let you share that experience and, you know, it's extra work. Uh, but, but again, it's, it's a, it's a shared experience at that point, just like, you know, whiskey is, uh, uh, whiskey, whiskey with a friend is different experience than whiskey by yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, and, uh, you know, there's a reason that, uh, you know, Starbucks became a third, Mm -hmm. third choice destination besides work and home is because people used it as a social experience. And, um, uh, as much, you know, the coffee was only a component of it. Um, Mm -hmm. and it just became a common place for people to meet, to work, to interview. I can't tell you how many places, how times I would see people you know, interview, being interviewed in a Starbucks. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and, and so I, so that, that becomes all part of the coffee culture, similar to the whiskey culture, which is there's many different, it's, it's both the product and it's the experience. Yeah. Yeah. So anything else you want to say about coffee? My coffee is still really hot. Thirty minutes after making it, so I'm still yeah, mine's, enjoying. Yeah, mine's getting a little cooler. I, I probably have one more pour out of my mm-hmm. my container, and I'll, I'll I will finish it. But then I have a I have a decaf iced coffee, you know, in the in the uh, as a backup. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I'm done. All right, so um, I'm gonna before we talk about inventory and supply chain questions of different types, I'm gonna throw a curveball at you, Jamie. So you had commented the other day something about. Um, I don't know if this was on Instagram or that you'd never seen me wear a hat. Yeah, you're right. Something to that yeah, effect. I, just, I forgot what triggered like that. that. We were, well, we were, um, I, you know, there's so much about your, your, uh, your, your style that is, you know, I don't want to say iconic, but is how style, Mark looks. Think, no. Okay. It's, it's how it's, I look. It's, okay. It's how I expect Mark to look. Um, sure. And, uh, yeah, I guess there was a post about many hats, uh, or <laughs> something right. like that. That's what it was. Proverbial what career was. hats. Yeah. 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 The, the many, the many hats of Mark and you are, uh, very diversified and, and, uh, sort of, I'll say a parallel entrepreneur is what I like to refer to it as, <laughs> sure. but many different projects going on at once, many different hats. And I think that was the post that I, yeah. I, I commented on and I probably have seen you in a hat, but, um, no, it probably just wasn't Probably not. It, it maybe I haven't, and it, it was yeah. just wasn't the picture I I had in mind. So so today, here you, you know, here you've got a hat on. So those who are just listening won't won't see this, but um, I'm wearing like I'm feeling very Texasy today. I'm in Texas. I'm drinking LA coffee that I brought back with me, but I've got my Garrison <laughs> Brothers shirt. My hat is uh, from Billy Bob's, Texas, uh, Fort Worth, famed honky tonk and concert venue. But here, I'm, I'm, this, this is going to be a surprise for you, Jamie. I'm going to maybe. I think I'm going to do that the second half of the episode with this hat. Here we go. Now we're Texas. And I, and I need. And before I do that, part of why I'm wearing the hat is a. It's early. B. I need a haircut, and my hair is just ridiculous if I haven't just taken a shower and. Okay. Yeah. I do not. Ready? These are these are problems I do I, not have. I, I, I wasn't trying to rub that in. So look at this. There you go. Now you're Texas. Uh, I've got myself a cowboy hat that I, I uh, we'll post a picture. Um, we'll take a screen grab and post a picture. I, I, I am, as they say in Texas, all hat and no cattle. Like I yes. feel 
I you feel do not have any cattle. <laughs> I feel fraudulent wearing this. I mean, it, it, it fits. I'll leave it on. It goes with the Garrison Brothers motif. It, it does. It does. Um, <laughs> I, I can't think of the last time I had a cowboy hat. I was probably a kid. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to go get a, a fedora, which is probably more of my, uh, my, my style. Um, or a newsboy cap. I, I was going to say that's like a uh, like a, a English football coach might wear, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm a uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sure. I, <laughs> I I could maybe pull off a cowboy hat, ironically, but um, uh, it, it, it it's a uh, I don't definitely don't have enough Texas in me for that. So, uh, but I don't know, you know if I'm wearing the hat ironically. I feel fraudulent. Where well, you are, te- you are currently a Texan and you've been there quite a long time. So I think, I think it's fair. <laughs> I think it's a fair choice. There's, yeah. there's very few, uh, very few Texans who have cattle. So, uh, um, yeah, that's true. And as a point of process, you're so you're supposed to grab the hat by the crown. So you don't screw up the, right. The bend of the hat. I think I can tip the hat like that. So, all right. So we're going to talk about supply chain and inventory concepts here. There, there's a number of articles that caught our attention that I think are interconnected in different ways, like on the theme of inventory and supply chain. So just to throw a couple of them, of them out there, there's been a lot in the news again recently that, uh, you know, the, the death of just in time. I think we've talked about this before, so this won't be the main point, but that's been back in the news again. Um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about how so supposedly Toyota is putting the brakes on just in time because of some semiconductor chip issues. And the point I tried to make, and Jeff Liker wrote something really good on the LEI website, is that Toyota's not moving away from just in time. There have always been certain suppliers and certain components because of distance and variation where they would hold more inventory. Toyota is pragmatic, not dogmatic. And, and I tried, you know, I was trying to be nice and not super snarky, but I tweeted at the reporter from the Wall Street Journal who was basically a jerk about it. He was defensive. Well, I talked to Toyota. Okay, so you know more than Jeff Liker. Great. Good luck with that. So, Yeah, he, 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 I'm not sure who he talked to. Uh, I'm sure not the, uh, the guy running supply chain uh, supply chain, uh, design. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but I think that what was interesting is that the, the, the first article that I think got us headed down this path, cause you and I have always gone back and forth every time, you know, uh, uh, the, the just in time stuff comes up in the news. It's, it's, it's poorly reported and yeah. lacks. I actually saw one from the economist who I, mm-hmm. I generally respect, and it was all about the Suez Canal, and right. um, and it was uh, I, you know, really kind of missed the point. And mm-hmm. you know, I will talk about you know healthcare supplies, but but the, the the since we weren't drinking whiskey, we still did have a whiskey news article, <laughs> in, in yeah. some sense, which is which is the hunt, the ten million bourbon barrels that are you know I, I think a that, that is resting right that is aging. Um, which I'd argue is a value-added, that's a value-added process while it's in the barrel. By definition, right, yes. it is it is value-added. Now, now, what's interesting, just as a quick aside on this, is that this is where, where you age the barrel, mm-hmm. you know, matters because, mm-hmm. the, you know, if the, the, whether it's the state you age it in 
or we get to Jefferson's Reserve Ocean where it's on a boat and sloshing around and that changes things. Or if it's in the top floor of the rec house or the bottom floor of the rec house where the temperature variation is different. But, you know, the, the value add in the winter is different than the value add in the summer sure. because the, the, the differences in the temperature. But, you know, the, the process of swelling and shrinking and sitting and interacting with the wood of the barrel is, is definitely changing the product by mm -hmm. very and, and for the better form fitter function. It's changing form fitter function of the product mm -hmm. by absolute definition value add. Um, yeah. But it's still inventory. It's still a lot of it. And, you know, how do you not, you know, how do you not overshoot the market years right. into the future? Right. That's the challenge here, right? So the headline says nearly 10 million barrels resting in Kentucky. Is that good? Question mark. So I'm thinking of, you know, the statistician Don Wheeler, who one of his expressions is without context, data have no meaning. So we get into the article and it says the Kentucky Distillers Association released numbers, which we'll assume are accurate. That's not the issue here, right? There are 2.1 million barrels filled. And so I think they filled 2, billion, 2 million barrels in the last year. And there are a total of almost 10 million. So there's a total barrels, almost 10 million that are aging at some point. And it says it's a record number. So that sets a little context. It's a record number. But, you know, it says here, when you talk about trying to hit market demand, um, we, we can talk a little bit about system dynamics, as, as we both learned uh, and studied at MIT, or people may know from um, the fifth discipline, Peter Senge, and, and books like that. It is really hard when you've got long time lags to predict anything or to understand cause and effect. So if you're trying to forecast demand four to ten years in advance, good luck with that. And whiskey making, by definition, can't be a really agile supply chain, right? So this article says here, um, if you ask the distillery owners, the liquid in at least half those barrels won't be ready to sell for years. There's 15% that could be dumped, as they say, and filtered and bottled. And that really wouldn't be enough to quench demand right now. Right. So what what do you do about um, you know down the road? And and they are trying to find this balance of, and I know Garrison Brothers has gone through this as there have been waves in their sales. The uh, the quote unquote beer game effect has hit Garrison Brothers, but you know you 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 look at your demand for coming months because that last leg of the supply chain of when do we bottle it and ship it you do have control over. So you can bottle it and ship it. But as we've talked about before, whiskey does not get better in the bottle. It just sits inert. Right. It's not going to get bad. So you don't have that supply chain challenge. Um, or they can continue aging it, which could make it better, but then to a point, maybe not anymore. So they, there, there are all sorts of things that they're, they're trying to balance. Um, so you know, someone else in the, in the article said, if anything, you know, you say we've got 10 million barrels. They said, if anything, we're concerned about a lack of supply. We don't see consumer tastes changing or things slowing down. I don't see evidence of an impending glut, but that's all a guess, right? It's all a guess, right? Because the time frame is, you know, it, it, are, are you looking at current trends? Well, mm -hmm. you know, it's very hard to predict tastes over a 10-year time horizon, mm -hmm. which is kind of what we're 
you know, at least talking about a five-year time horizon. And what's what's interesting is that if you go back in time and and look at the other end of this, where there was an overshoot only because of demand dropping. So, you know, scotch in the 80s was not a popular drink, mm-hmm. right? And you know, we we go back to that time frame and before, and and people didn't, you know, people didn't drink a lot of twenty-one-year-old scotch, mm-hmm. right? It was it was just it was you know ten-year-old, twelve-year-old scotch. Um, I'm not a big meme guy, but one of my my favorites is always, uh, no matter how cool you think you are, you'll never be as cool as Frank Sinatra stepping out of a helicopter with a glass of scotch. <laughs> um, well, I, well, and, and, and so, so it's interesting. You mentioned Frank Sinatra last night, just interrupt real quick. We watched a documentary about Jack Daniels. Mm. Frank Sinatra was a Jack Daniels guy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't drink, you know, he wasn't drinking like high end stuff. He, of course he yeah. was drinking a lot of it, but, <laughs> right. yeah. um, but he could afford whatever he wanted and, and didn't even have to pay for most of his drinks. But, but if you look at demand dropped significantly, people moved to different beverages, and this meant that this, the Scotch distilleries almost had to age stuff longer, <laughs> right? Which, which, in some ways, led to the new culture of longer age stuff. Um, yeah, and 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 so if if that hadn't happened, if demand hadn't dropped so much that all this stuff ended up you know, aging longer because they, they didn't have a market to, to bottle, it, bottle it. They ended up with more, you know, 18-year-old and 21-year-old and 15-year-old stuff. And, and did that stoke, uh, lower the price of higher-end stuff and then mm-hmm. stoke the, the market's interest in, in higher-age stuff? So, you know, hard to, hard to know for sure, but we, we certainly saw a huge, you know, mm-hmm multi-decade really at least a couple of decade market dynamic on the other end not enough not enough demand for the supply yeah because in this article talks about the bottom falling out in the 60s when consumer interests shifted towards gin vodka tequila and wine and you know i think it's interesting in the u.s uh well maybe, maybe we're just drinking more wine consumption has increased dramatically um at all ends of the wine quality and price spectrum, but people are also drinking more whiskey. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they, there's, there's just, it's hard to predict, right? They didn't predict, they probably didn't predict bourbon and now rye becoming trendy. They missed that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that gives them any more certainty about, you know, missing potentially the trend, the boom, um, Ending. So, you know, in, in the past, you know, the risk is distillers go out of business and other people buy up their supply and then blend it into something or continue aging it. Or, you know, maybe we end up with the next Pappy Van Winkle somehow. Right. Well, and, and, and the what's very hard with this market dynamic is you look at where you stage inventory. Right. So with, mm-hmm. with whiskey, again, you stage inventory in barrels, um, you, you stage it in bottles Um you stage it at retailers, mm-hmm. and then the the added dynamic is you stage it in the hands of consumers, because more and more, and it was true of both wine, and it's always been true of wine with cellaring. You know, you know, I have I have bottles that I don't intend to open for another ten years, um, and those continue to age and get better. Those do continue to, to age and yeah. get better. Yeah. But but even with whiskey, people will they'll find something that they like, and then they buy a case of it, and they. In, tend to hang on to it 
or they're hanging on to it to sell it later, which is a huge market. So, you know, we know statistically wine and, you know, I, we know more about wine and whiskey purchases going up than we actually know about wine and whiskey consumption going mm-hmm. up, right? And so at some point, does there become a glut of inventory owned by consumers that re-enters the market in the, sec- in the secondary market and, and competes with the manufacturers? Right. Or if there were you know, uh, economic problems um – People might buy less, and they'll draw down their personal inventory. But like I saw, I think they're, they're a relatively small percentage of wine drinkers are holding inventory at home, whether that's on a shelf, a rack, a fridge, or a cellar. Like you know, most people are buying wine to be consumed that day or the next couple of days, which is kind of like the industry yep. generalization. Um, but when you talk about the different stages. So what I know of the story of Garrison Brothers, um, you know, you, you, you have the three, by law, the three-tier distribution system. You have the, um, you've got the distiller, and then you've got the uh, distributors, then you've got the retailer, and then you've got the consumer. So this comes back to the, uh, the, the quote-unquote beer game, the famous yes. tabletop simulation, the MIT beer game, that is brewer, distributor, retailer, customer, right? Yep. There's four yeah, stages yeah. and four, four steps stages, in the supply yeah, chain. Brewer, distributor, wholesaler, uh, uh, retailer. Was okay. The yeah. the, and then there's right. the consumer is a, a deck of cards, essentially, is the consumer yeah. at the far end. So the beer game, the, 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 the punchline of the game is like as you're playing it, only the retailer sees the little blip upward in demand where demand goes from like two cases, whatever the units is, uh, two cases to four cases. And so the retailer reacts and increases their order back upstream. And those the, the increase gets amplified as you go further back up to the brewer. So then at the end of the game, you, you ask the brewer to draw a curve of what they think happened to demand, and they'll draw something wildly oscillating where it was, it was not oscillating at the point of retail. It just went up once in that little blip um, because of poor communication, lack of visibility, um, it, it, those swings get bigger and bigger upstream. So what happened to Garrison Brothers going back a few years ago is that they, were sell, they, they sell through their channels. They have distributors and there's inventory and then it goes through the retailers. And they were forecasting their next year of how much they were going to bottle and sell. And then basically their orders for the year were zero, like quite literally zero, because the, the, the supply chain was full. Mm-hmm. And demand, I'm sure if you look at uh, demand for Garrison Brothers, I'm sure more was bought at retail and more was consumed by drinkers. But Garrison Brothers had zero orders. And, and, and that, creates a, that, that creates, needless to say, huge business challenges when – and then, and then coming out, out of that, now they've had some boom years. So they're totally being hit by the beer game dynamic. Yeah, and the, the, the beer game uh, is a, a personal favorite of mine. Um, you know, I, I used to, uh, uh, before I even went to MIT, I, I was at Chrysler. I, uh, we actually ran a, a five-day system or organizational learning course. Daniel Kim and Diane Corey. Daniel Kim 
from a systems thinking standpoint, I put up there with with John Sturman and Jay Forster. Um, mm-hmm. I, and and it just I, I love Daniel. He's a fantastic mind. But they they came in, and I was basically a co facilitator with them of this five day organizational learning. Uh, so there's like three or four of us that would help with this five day event. We would actually run at the Thomas Edison Inn up by, in Port Huron, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so we ran the beer game. We uh, we we often ran it in the evening with real beer being served, <laughs> and that, that that was not a good decision. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I ran it for several years. Uh, I, th- I then, of course, took it uh, with systems thinking at, uh, um, at, at MIT. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I used the simulation, used the design, used the, the beer game, actually did some redesign of the, the, the delivery of it, but um, used that for 15 years. I ran the beer game uh, probably a couple hundred times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I, you know, there's a couple of favorite takeaways for me besides the 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 the, the, the supply chain aspect. You know, the, the, there's two aspects of the the system design, but also the human element. Um, and and I like to distinguish. We talk about systems dynamics, which is what Jay Forrester mm-hmm. was, and systems thinking. I like to think of systems thinking as drawing pictures. Systems dynamics mm-hmm. is doing the math, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because there's yeah. some real math here, but the impact of delays on on the system, you know, the combination of lack of transparency and delays on the system, but then the human element is the decision rules, the heuristics that you use to make decisions within it is is always fascinating. Now, I have right. so many stories of people choosing really bad heuristics mm-hmm. um, in that system, largely from not understanding the systems or the impact of delays. Um, but it's going back to, you know, we'll come, I'm sure we'll come back to Toyota, but it's, you know, even their heuristics, right? When are we just in time? When are we not? Mm-hmm. When are we an exception to the rule? When are we doing something different off, you know, an abnormal condition versus normal condition? Those are all decision decisions that are made by heuristics that mm-hmm. are well-informed. Yeah. And it's tough when, you know, you have time delays, and lags and and even just having a slow supply chain. So the one thing that these articles, not the, not just the Wall Street Journal, but other publications get re- just com- they 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 completely misunderstand stand just in time. They think it means zero inventories and somehow that you can do just in time replenishment from halfway around the world, from literally a slow boat from China. And one thing that was really fun, interesting about. This Jack Daniels documentary is uh, they actually followed from barrel to bottle to shipping container. There was a shipping container with more than 2000 cases of Jack Daniels that was on a truck. Then it was on a train going to the port of Charleston, South Carolina. It went on to a huge shipping uh, boat that went down through the Panama Canal and it went all the way to New Zealand and then to Australia. And then they showed the two cases being put on a truck, a pickup truck driven to some bar in a tiny town in the outback. If that's how you're getting your Jack Daniels, 10,000 miles, 35 days, that's not just in time delivery. No. You can't possibly think of that as being, and they didn't describe it as that in the documentary, but 
that's just that's, that's a different kind of supply chain altogether. And there are going to be times where they sell that bottle and they run out and they can't get more for who knows how long. Right, right. And that's, you know, I, I, I uh, well, using the beer game, right, come back to decision rules, you know, we, we actually had teams just by design, we would, we would give them the heuristic of only ordered exactly what is ordered of you, mm-hmm. which is actually a, a not ideal. It's by no right. means an optimistic rule because right. you actually are in a small backlog the entire time. You're always there's, behind. And there's some amplification still. Still some amplification, mm-hmm. but it is muted because everybody uses the same rule. Right. And the rule is designed not to have overreaction. And, and it is one of the best performances you can have. Uh, by following that rule, but it's not the optimal uh, outcome, mm-hmm. right? right? And and, and the, one of the main reasons for, for these things are, you know, even your decision rules is, well, it depends on what order of magnitude, mm-hmm. right? So just in time, over a 10 to 20% variance in mm-hmm. demand yep. is very different than a 2 to 400% or in the cases of things like like masks or mm-hmm. um, uh, you know other things that people have have not just pandemic healthcare related pandemic stuff, but you know office furniture, home office furniture, mm-hmm. and laptops and webcams and things like mm-hmm. that. You know sometimes a a, a one thousand or two thousand percent mm-hmm. increase. Well just in time isn't meant to operate right. in those conditions. It, I think it's meant to operate, like you said, you know, that 10 to 20% demand swing and with local short lead time suppliers. Right. Yeah. With, with the ability to react to the, the signal change, right. Over again, over what duration, you know, 5% in a short duration, maybe 20% over a longer duration, mm-hmm. But at some point, and again, it depends on the supply chain, you start talking about, well, new capital, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, so you can't make more vaccines, masks, uh, you know, other things without buying more capital. Mm-hmm. And that capital isn't, in, you know, I can, I can maybe hire a new shift, right? If I didn't already have that, right? right. I can maybe, you know, work on driving some waste out. I can crank up mm-hmm. uh, the demand signal a little bit, like, but I can't buy more capital, right? And even, you know, toilet paper is an example. Mm-hmm. It takes time. Toilet paper is you had the capital of manufacturing plants that made commercial toilet paper was different equipment <laughs> and different capital equipment mm-hmm. that made residential toilet paper. And so it's so not a very flexible there, design. Yeah. It wasn't a flexible design and capital couldn't be redeployed rapidly. And it wasn't, you know, yes, there was hoarding without question, mm-hmm. but the shortage wasn't in toilet paper period. It was in residential toilet paper. Right. Because that's where the capital was over, uh, overextended. And so again, time horizons is a huge impact on these supply chain designs and, and just in time mm-hmm. that, you know, I think the media, you know, the media needs to understand as they as they write these stories that uh, that that help fuel lack of understanding of how mm-hmm. supply chains work. Yeah. So when you talk about it, I didn't know that about uh, toilet paper, different equipment, 
hard to switch over from one to the other or impossible to switch over. And this is where, uh, you know, you look at not just supply chain decisions, but product development and architecture decisions. Toyota and other automakers moving toward more general platform architectures and being able to build a wider variety of different vehicles on the same assembly line becomes mm-hmm. a huge advantage. If consumer demand for some reason shifts away from crossover type vehicles and trucks to sedans, uh, I mean, that may not happen for a lot of reasons. But let's say if that were to happen, um, you know, the Toyota plant in San Antonio can build different types of pickup trucks. I don't know how easily they could retool that over to Camrys. You know, so they have, right. I think, more flexibility than they did in the past, but probably still not like this really. I guess we're trying to figure out what's the optimal level of flexibility. I you have more time in the auto industry than I did. Is, 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 yeah, and, 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 and so you, you look at both subcomponent simplification as well as you know, platform simplification. You delay decisions as long as possible so that you have more flexibility up to the last minute. Even you know, if you look at, this is one of my favorite examples, was wire harnesses, which are big and bulky and, and expensive. Yeah. And if you look at all the features on a car, you might actually need like 50-some different wire harnesses. In a lot of cases, we found it was more cost effective just to, you know, reduce the number of wire harnesses. So we didn't have the wrong amount. Uh And, and then you just didn't, you just didn't plug in the feature that somebody didn't order. Sure. Like if they were smart enough, they could get in there and just plug it in and they'd have this feature they didn't (laughs) pay for. They can't get to it. Yeah. But they can't get to it without some, some work and and some effort. Um, But it it does come at a cost in, in certain cases. So the airbag, right. The Takata, uh, is it Takata, right? The Takata that was one of the companies. Situation. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was yep. like, there's no reason to have 47 different types of airbags, right? Just like way back when I was a mm-hmm. Chrysler, we found we had 17 different black seatbelts. Right. And and I don't know what was worse, the fact that we had 17 or the fact that we only got down to three yeah. <laughs> in, our, in our reduction. But because a whole bunch of different companies and a whole bunch of different platforms use the same design. Once mm-hmm. they had a defect in design that they didn't really figure out, it affected a lot mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. I mean, General Motors was, um, I think, uh, for a while notorious about um, you know individualizing components because you have engineering groups and product development groups that want to put their stamp on something. Um, there's all kinds of organizational drivers, but they, you know, they they would start consolidating to you know start thinking across an entire product line of a General Motors portfolio. Back in the day, when you had a wider range of brands, why does like under the hood um, the the cap that goes on the windshield wiper filler? Why does that need to be different on a Saab versus an Oldsmobile versus a Hummer? Just to mention a few dead brands, but um, yeah, why, why have that differentiation? If you think, look at Toyota and um, Lexus. There are, I'm sure, a number of things that the the driver would never notice and would never care about, where the part is identical on a Toyota Avalon versus the equivalent Lexus. But if they were to start getting too cheap and have the Lexus buyer say like, oh, these these knobs and controls in the interior, this is starting to feel like a Toyota. No offense. It's not that Toyotas are cheap, but relatively speaking, 
Right. Like G- GM would get criticized for using, um, you know, they, they, they'd say, oh, like you pulled from the parts bin, the Chevrolet parts bin for these Cadillac parts, and you're trying to position Cadillac as a premium, and it doesn't feel very premium. Like that's part of the trade-off there. But it comes back to value is defined by the customer and perception yep. and, and use functionality versus um, appearance and touch. And, and, and so, yeah, I think when it, when it comes to, you know, product design and how it affects these supply chain dynamics, uh, an interesting, you know, uh, guideline or rule of thumb or heuristic is, you know, always, always simplify where possible, mm-hmm. right? But not at the expense of customer value, right? Right. So talk yourself into the added variation rather than have to talk yourself out of it mm-hmm. as a, as a general rule. Um, but, but then, you know, you also have supply chain design and, and you already talked about these, you know, these long supply chain designs, which are inherently inflexible, right? Now, if you're, again, you're, you're bottling stuff and, and you're trying to meet a, a year's worth of demand plus or minus, you know, 40% because you don't, you know, the product doesn't spoil on the shelf. Okay. Right. Um, but if you do have, uh, if you do have expiration of orders or expiration of product, uh, you, you need to be more flexible. Um, I, I think one, one of my favorite, uh, interesting twists on a supply chain design was a, a company doing a, uh, a product, um, uh, designing a product that they did make in China, um, you know, they, they it was it was injection molded. It was lots of components. It was, um, uh, you know, filled out uh, in a in a box, and so it was one of these that you know typically got made in 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 somewhere in Asia. I don't really remember mm-hmm. if it was China, and it was for a season, which meant they had to kind of get it right, but uh, what they did was they they. They made their 80% factory uh, order for from China and then saved 20% of the demand for U.S. production. Hmm. So they could kind of like see where demand really was yeah, and then, yeah. and then dial in at the last mm-hmm. minute locally, mm-hmm. right? And so that supply chain, you know, there's lots of different ways to do it, but people underestimate the, the ability to respond and, and how time affects – Mm-hmm. The, the the ability to respond to the market. Yeah. Well, and I think there are there are systems, right? So just in time and the Toyota production system is not just one piece, right? So there are all these different decisions and aspects of the company that go hand in hand. You you can you get in trouble if you try to copy just one part of the system. Um, but, you know, I think of like, you know, when it comes to differentiation and what have you, like I'm looking at devices I have with me, uh, iPhone this is an iPhone 12 pro. I think I'm quite certain that the iPhone 11, or at least going back a couple of generations, the pro and the regular were slightly different sizes. And okay. you think why? So they, I'm sure it's a huge advantage. The 12 and the 12 pro are now the exact same size. So that means advantages when it comes to producing cases. There's greater greater economies of scale when it comes to that. I'm sure there's greater economies of scale when it comes to the production of cases. 
right? And you can see, you know, with the phone insert, I've got three cameras, which makes it one of the things that makes it a pro. The, the, the iPhone regular has two cameras, but I'm sure that inset is the exact same size, right? So that one part of the component is different, but the overall size of it is the same, which I'm sure at some point somebody said, wait a minute, why, why the hell do we have two slightly, like not big enough or small enough where it would make a difference to the consumer. It was just annoyingly different. And yeah. Why? And you know, and Apple, you know, has a history of not, not worrying about, you know, uh, whether the customer, uh, <laughs> can find the right case or any of those things. Yeah. They kind of worry about their own optimization. Now, now Steve jobs used to say he wants all of his, his entire product lineup to fit on one conference room table. He wanted simplicity. Mm-hmm. He didn't want, you know, he, he would be, I think, driven crazy by some of the product proliferation that's that's happened within Apple. And whether it's right or yeah. wrong is, is irrelevant. It's just inconsistent with his strategy. And he wasn't really thinking about supply chain dynamics, but um, uh, more about, you know, designing it what's right for the customer and then just declaring that it that it's right. Um, but, you know, Apple has a very different, you know, they're not just in time, right? They, no. they're, they're big on release day demand, right? Big I mean, bursts. I don't, yeah. I don't know what the percentage is, but the percentage of phones that are sold on release day is significant, um, mm-hmm. and perhaps less significant than it used to be, but, you know, with lines around the block for people to get the latest product, but they would, they would try to produce all this stuff. And get the inventory staged and, and be ready, and mm-hmm. then all in one day, demand boom is yeah. is, uh, is is wiped clean, and then they continue to sell until they they surge the market again. But their their supply chain isn't designed. We could we could argue whether that's lean or not, but it's intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly not just in time because it's an intentional supply chain design. Yeah. And you make me wonder um, what you were saying about the wire harnesses. And um, I'm, I'm looking at my MacBook Pro, which is a version of the MacBook Pro that has two Thunderbolt ports on each side. There's a total of four. The less expensive MacBook Pros only have two on the left hand side. The case, the aluminum body, the form factor is exactly the same. It makes me wonder if the motherboard on the inside is exactly the same, but it's just a matter of they drilled two more holes in the aluminum to make those right. ports <laughs> accessible. Well, and, and you'll see. Um, I don't know. Yeah, th- these are these are design questions, you know, because somebody other than Apple would drill them out on all the units and then put plugs in, right? <laughs> um, Apple would say, absolutely not. But you see that with cars all the time. It's like, right. what are those two circles there? Oh, that's where mm. the license plate holder goes for states that have a front license plate, or yeah. that's where you hook up the uh, uh, the bike rack or something like my, that. I, I think um, one other example, my vehicle, when you go to put uh, gas in, um, there's obviously the gas nozzle. And then there, to the left, there's a whole that's kind of like covered up. And I think that would be for the diesel version of it. That would be where you add the, um, the fluid, the special fluid that you also have to occasionally add for diesel emissions. Yeah. So they've just, yeah, they've yeah. just covered it. Right. 
And 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 this is, you know, again, the 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 simplicity of your product leads to the simplicity of your your supply chain design. You know, my my wife used to drive a Honda Pilot, which now my my two older kids share. Um, uh, that that word share, I could have a whole podcast on that. But um, but the uh, I when when we bought the Honda Pilot, there was three different trim levels, and there were like four dealer options, which are basically things that they were pre-drilled for, and they could just you know plug in the fog lights or plug in the, the you know pop on the the roof rack. Yeah. And and that was it. And so when we, when when the dealership didn't have the, the specific unit we wanted, there were three at other dealerships within, you know, within the region. And so it was a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. Now, when I order my my German car, <laughs> the 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 product option list from the factory is so complex. I would ask the I would ask the uh, the salesman about a feature. He's like. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I haven't seen that. It's so complex. Even the guy selling it doesn't understand it. And, um, and that's why they have then a, you know, a a four to eight month delay on Mm -hmm. getting you what you want. And maybe again, I'm, I'm that German manufacturer. Maybe that's part of the value add. They're trying to optimize value. Um, but it leads to other impacts in the supply chain dynamics including massive delays, whereas that Honda uh, is not trying to optimize value. They're trying to optimize uh, convenience, perhaps, and, and, and cost for that, that customer that can get what they want when they want it. Mm-hmm. And the final thing I want to bring up about supply chain dynamics, the other end of the beer game going from glut or uh, from, from shortages is going to glut. So a year ago, it was very difficult to find masks, hand sanitizer, cleaning wipes. Go to any grocery store now and you see basically buy one, get one free, buy two for the price of one. Like they can't give some of this away. And that's only what we're seeing at the very front face of the retail channel. I can only imagine how much there is now sitting uh, in inventories um, that, that, that's now impossible to move. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, and this was one where the supply chains did change. It wasn't buying new capital. It was redeploying capital that other people owned into the market, right? So every every vodka and gin producer um, started making, you know, hand sanitizer mm-hmm. or other, other sanitizer uh, uh, products, alcohol-based sanitize, sanitizers. Um, every clothing manufacturer um, made masks. I actually have, I don't want to say I'm, I'm not really embarrassed to say, uh, but uh, I have Brooks Brother masks. Um, <laughs> they, they actually weren't very, they were extremely cheap. Uh, and and I, was, oh, no. I was ordering something <laughs> anyway. And they just, they almost came along with the order. So I, it, yeah. was, it was, it was early on in the process, but it's bad, bad for the like brand I, if they're cheap or scratchy or uncomfortable. Or yeah. Something. They weren't, they weren't bad and they're not branded, right? They don't, you mm. know, it's not like, you know, I've seen Louis Vuitton <laughs> masks. I'm like, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty obvious, but yeah, there's masks everywhere. We have uh, way more masks at this point than we could use. And in part, trying to find the right ones. Like I had a hard time finding masks that wouldn't fog my glasses mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately failed right? in the winter when working hard. I, I basically had to go to 
anti-fog spray for my glasses. I never mm-hmm. found a mask that really prevented it. I know you can use tape and stuff, but um, yeah. anyway, these things have massive oversupply. Now, there's the inventory. There's also the capital, right? So yeah. hopefully capital was capital allocation was shifted, but hopefully new capital wasn't spent. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, let's, let's go put uh, three new factories online to build hand sanitizer um, because that capital will never get properly used um, and will be a tremendous waste mm-hmm. in the supply chain overall. Yeah. Good for equipment makers. And good for somebody. Good for equipment makers, sure. Yeah. Um, which, which many of them are very busy shifting to trying to react to either the good economy or just shift uh-huh. to uh, shifting demands in certain markets. A lot of equipment manufacturers are significantly delayed right now. Um, yeah. A lot of equipment you got to wait eighteen months for. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's it'll be it's interesting uh, how much hand sanitizer might be. Uh, might be sitting on shelves. Is it is it a twelve month supply or mm-hmm. a on the, on the same order of magnitude as the market right. uh, as the the yeah. undersupply or demand increases? Is there a thousand percent oversupply? Well, 12, 12 month supply based on what demand rate? Because like now that I'm a couple of factors, you know, I'm I'm vaccinated. Um, we've learned a lot more about surfaces. Like you don't have to be so worried about touching surfaces and picking up virus and getting yourself sick. Um, I try to wash my hands, but I use far less hand sanitizer. Like I've always had a pump bottle, uh, the last year in the cup holder of the vehicle. Um, just habit getting in the car, pump, pump, hand sanitize. I'm not yep. doing that as much, and I probably don't need to be doing it as much. And when that thing is empty, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm going to replace it. Maybe I'll leave one in the glove box for more of a just in case instead of daily use purposes. Um, yep. So you know, usage is down, and inventories are up, and maybe some of that can go into a strategic stockpile for, uh, God forbid, we hopefully don't have another pandemic, uh, in our lifetime, but. Right. But it's, it's interesting, you know, stockpiles are interesting because they require expense to manage as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And it depends on what it, it is. Risk. Mm-hmm. Right. We have a, we have a strategic oil reserve. We have a strategic, um, uh, milk, uh, reserve, all powdered milk. Right. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it, it could supply us in, in extreme conditions. And that's, that's old laws that you go back to, world wars cold war um, especially yeah but yeah but but you you know i know you did a podcast with dr burns from mit and you guys talked mm-hmm. a little bit about you know you know the, the the whole idea of reserves and and how do we stockpile stuff well you know we probably remember we had a ventilator reserve mm-hmm. uh, but the contract to maintain the equipment right expired yeah. and didn't get renewed, and so then we 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 owned resp- uh, uh, ventilators, but they didn't work. Right. And, and there's and risk so of how much there's all kinds of risk. stuff around, yeah. all kinds of risks. And so it's it's not a simple answer. And and again, it depends on order of magnitude. You know, do I do I need to stockpile a two month supply, twelve month supply, five year supply, and under what demand? 
Yeah. Uh, and at what cost? Because you, you think it's a five-year supply and then demand skyrockets and now it's a six-month supply. Exactly. Right. So, so you know, we saw that with ventilators, right, where, where we thought yeah. we, we had a strategic supply. It turns out not so much. And, uh, yeah. you well, know, what, what would happen with oil if, if, if there was – now, again, we've, we've shifted the oil – production in a very different way but preceding that you know if there was a, a a world war right what would happen to the strategic oil reserve and yeah and well, uh, well you look at the responsiveness you know a year ago almost exactly there was this huge push for general motors and other companies to start building ventilators and i think by the time those ventilators were built medicine was realizing ooh, okay no we shouldn't be throwing people on ventilators right away and so I wonder how many of those ventilators really ended up being put to use. Like clearly there are some patients who end up on a ventilator, but absolutely they, 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 they started doing less and less of that. So I think then the demand for ventilators had dropped. Right. Thank you, General Motors. Thank you for your service. But, you know, uh, to what effect? Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, lots of people uh, – Again, tried, you know, again, and gin companies make, make hand sanitizer. What we knew at the time, it, it was a good decision, right? I mean, if, if, if using hand sanitizer might have a positive impact on, on stopping some spread, mm-hmm. it was worth <laughs> making yeah. extra hand sanitizer and getting it out there. I, I, yeah. don't, I don't think that was a bad call based on the science we knew at the time, but the long-term right. outcome was we learned more, and uh, and the demand changed, and um, uh, and so I, you know, it, it, so now we have an oversupply, and and mm-hmm. it's it's, uh, it's one of those things that uh, you know we have to be thinking about in supply chains all the time. Mm-hmm. The 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 design of the product, the design of the supply chain, and uh, the decisions. The decision rules, the heuristics you use within that, yeah. right, and how you react um, along the way. And so we'll link to some of these different articles and you know that that podcast I did in my Lean podcast series with Dr. Jonathan Burns and um, some other things that you might want to read, even if we ended up not touching on it in depth. So you know, normally when we do podcasts in the evening. Um, Starts to get you know sleepy time here. My stomach. <laughs> I'll admit my stomach is growling, so I'm ready for <laughs> breakfast because all I've had so far is coffee. Um, so maybe we'll we'll sort of wrap things up on uh, a fun question note. How about that? Or, or closing fun question yeah. as we yeah, try to I, do so. Absolutely. And, so, and uh, I was, was going to say also, like you were starting to break up a little bit, and I was going to say like you're running out of Wi-Fi, which is not how that works. So I'm going. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a that's another supply chain uh, uh, dynamic that doesn't always have a, a rapid change, right? Yeah. Laying new uh, laying new pipes out uh, yeah. for your go, go, your, go your refill internet. your go refill your Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah, but so I think the fun question we were going to talk about, I'll throw it to you first, Jamie. Um, besides coffee, do you, what's what's your favorite thing that you experience in the morning in terms of routines or just something you enjoy? Yeah, so so I, I do um, you know I, I do love sitting out here in the morning when I can. I'm really glad the weather's changed, um, and, and I'll, I'll enjoy the morning birds. I'm sure some of those uh, some of the bird sounds came through uh, yeah. came through my mic, but um, soothing. 
Yeah, it's. I don't think that's. Uh, it's not like traffic uh, or, or or car <laughs> sirens. Like I had a meeting on on Friday with. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I love. I mean, along with my coffee, I love. Uh, I've actually learned to to significantly reduce my news consumption, and and more importantly, compress it to, you know, a, a batch essentially. Mm. Right. So I, I I I basically read very neutral uh, news uh-huh. sources in the morning, uh, almost always The Economist, and then usually Reuters. Um, but I will, when I can, sit out here with my coffee, usually my espresso uh, at that point, and and catch up on The Economist. And uh-huh. um, uh, and I, I, I just feel like it opens up my mind to what's going on in the rest of the world. It's not very few of the news articles are things I need to react to, but it connects me to the bigger world um, and sort of makes sure my mind is sort of big picture rather than little picture. And, uh, you know, just my next meeting, right? It's like, no, no, here's, here's the world I belong to. And it, it, it's a, it's a big part of my ritual at this point. Um, and, and my, uh, uh, and I, I, I enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah. I have always been a newspaper reader, um, even as a kid. Uh, in college, I got the, the paper, the Chicago Tribune, delivered uh, to the dorm and uh, read that very regularly. Um, I'm now in an iPad news consumption mode. So um, I, I try to minimize my cable news yeah. time of any, any of the channels. Um, just a lot of arguing and like I, I feel like I, I, I get – a better read of the news from different sources. So I'll read on, on the iPad a range of, um, you know, New York times, wall street journal being in LA. I've been reading, uh, subscribed to the LA times mainly for mm-hmm. local news coverage around, you know, the, the pandemic and things now are getting better knock on wood in um, LA County. But, you know, when, when I'm in Los Angeles, we're really fortunate um, to be in uh, a condo that's close enough to the water, um, close enough to the, the, the one Marina where, uh, you know, in the morning as, as the sun is coming up and like, especially on a clear morning, um, the, 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 the ocean looks very, very blue when the sky is very clear, like on a cloudy day, the ocean looks like the sky. Um, but one thing that's been a real blessing in this year is, uh, being able to enjoy Monday morning, looking outside at the water. That's, um, Something I realize that's a real privilege and a blessing to be able to enjoy, but um, I'm thankful for that. Cup of coffee, yeah, I, iPad, I say, iPad uh, and I, it's usually, uh, a view. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, a view of, of any sort. But uh, you know, I, I I don't live on a lake, but you know, any chance I get to be get some a morning still lake mm-hmm. is is you know just this clear crystal you know, still lake that's highly reflective. Those are, those are fantastic. So uh, yeah. I, I can, I can appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, when we were in Orlando, I would walk around um, Lake Eola, which, you know, downtown Lake. Um, it was a sinkhole at some point. <laughs> it's Florida. Uh, they turned it into a lake with a beautiful fountain. And like you said, on a really still water morning, some of the downtown buildings and things just reflecting off. There's something about, Looking at water, I don't, I don't know what 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 in our DNA makes that enjoyable, but that seems to be something people enjoy. It it 
It, it, it does. Very peaceful and in another way reminds you that you're part of a much, much bigger world. Good thing to be All right, reminded so let's wrap of. Things so. up, I guess. All right. So, our thank you for listening. Um, you can find all past episodes at leanwhiskey.com. You can spell whiskey with a K E Y or uh, a K Y at the end, leanwhiskey.com. That'll forward to my website. If you would rather go to Jamie's website, it is. Yep. Yeah, you can find me at jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. Uh, you find the same, same feed of podcasts. And uh, you can, you know, the main places you can find us, of course, include Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, it's now called Google Podcasts. So I'm going to update our standard here. Um, it used to be <laughs> called Google Play. Um, you can find us in all the main podcast directories. And they now say instead of subscribe, the language they use is follow. So please yep. follow. And then we'd also ask yeah, you to. Yeah, follow us, rate us, review us. Um, you know, we really appreciate these small gestures. It helps us, but it also helps other people find it. So we appreciate just a, a small gesture of a, a rate review or a follow. And I think next episode we'll, we'll, we'll be back to whiskey in the evening, right? Yeah, it, it's a, it's a small detour, but we will, we will, we at least covered whiskey in the news, but it, it'll, it'll be time to return to, to drinking whiskey. So until then, you know, cheers. Top of the morning to you. Um, if, if we if we had done if we had taken just a quick digression before we before we end if if we because you know I wonder sometimes like you know framing this as lean whiskey like I don't know I mean, maybe that scares off some listeners who say well I'm against whiskey I don't care about whiskey if we had really framed it as a lean coffee podcast we might have run out of things to talk about regarding coffee. Oh, I'm I, I'm sure as only, I think <laughs> I think this was. I don't want to say the deepest dive um, but uh, that, that I've ever had on coffee, but uh, I would definitely, yeah, I would definitely run out. Um, but the, the wonderful world of whiskey is a, a much, much more interesting rabbit hole to dive into. <laughs> All right. So until next time. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. See ya. See ya.